Welcome to the Taiwanese Diaspora Podcast, where we use personal storytelling to connect people of Taiwanese heritage from all around the world. I am Cynthia, and I'm excited to use this podcast platform as a way to explore what it means to be Taiwanese X. This is episode 35. This episode is in English. I came across a post that Jeff wrote and wanted to share it. This is in context of violence against Asians. So he'll read his post and we'll have a discussion about racism in the workplace and dating and some strategies to process these more difficult feelings. 大家好，欢迎收听台湾人网络广播，我是阿秀，用这个平台来跟华侨华裔的台湾人聊他们的生活过程和未来的梦想。这是第三十五集，这集用英文聊。我今天邀请了Jeff来给我们分享他在演出上
there's a dignity that comes with being Asian American too, not from what we contribute to working at NIH or cooking the foods everyone likes, but by persevering in a place that isn't always welcoming and has strange grammar rules. There was a time growing up when I wished I weren't Asian. Without the guise of my Cheesecake Factory alias, life has been harder in ways, some concrete and others I'll never know how to explain. But thinking about today, I would not trade in my Asian identity. It is the fabric of a beautiful culture and community, a gift that unfurls slowly, showing me something new every day. Oh my gosh. Was that okay? That was amazing. When I read it, I wanted to cry. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh. Wow. Where do you want to start? Do you want to do another introduction about yourself? And then we can dive into some other line, like threads from um, yeah. your piece. Well, so my name is Jeffrey Sang. Sang is kind of how we like Americanize it, actually. So I guess for the purposes of this podcast, we should be a little bit more accurate. And it's the last name is Zung. Um, but that's my name. As an intro, I'm a second generation Taiwanese American. And I grew up in Maryland, right outside of DC, and spent quite a lot of time there in my formative years. And now I live in, in New York and I work in the finance industry. And, you know, um, I think when all this was happening, I was getting a lot of like incoming messages about like, oh, like, how are you doing? How do you feel? And I'm not someone who's like very good at accessing my emotions and my feelings, like verbally at least, like from the get-go. So I, I felt like maybe it was an opportunity to sort of sit down and like hash out my feelings in like a written piece. Um, so in a way, it was just kind of a way for me to uh, have some catharsis and just like put that out there so I could contemplate my actual feelings and then just like sort of not let it go but let it be for a bit um but it's resonated with a lot of people which i'm i'm happy about because i know a lot of you know my friends and people um that i know through social media have felt these same feelings and gone through these same things let's go back to childhood because we grew up kind of in the same area except i was in the other county <laughs> When do you think you became aware of being othered? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, you know, you and I grew up more or less sort of in the same like suburban community of DC. And like one of the beautiful things about that area, Montgomery County in particular, is just this like almost like perfectly equally distributed diversity in terms of like, you know, there's like, a slice of the pie that's white and then Hispanic and black and Asian and it's like really just mixed. So like I remember like elementary school um, and middle school and high school just being exposed to all these different types of people. So, you know, for example, when we were young and we had our like first girlfriends or boyfriends, <laughs> which were like not really serious or anything, but like we never really thought about like race or at least I didn't that was a phenomenon that like sort of came about once we went off to college and we were in these new communities where um, our peers didn't have that same exposure. So I think like, you know, in high school, I would like to think that like my high school friend groups were very mixed, 
but like as I went later on in life and like post-college into professional type settings like it just became more and more um you know these the diversity is there in these institutions but like you're self-segregating because of what you're comfortable with and what your peers are comfortable with and what you can relate to and things like that i've been thinking about this a lot lately in some ways it feels a little disingenuine when maybe your workplace is trying to put together a message to put them on the right side of being politically correct and standing up for people of color. But there are like things that could have been done or that should already be done in terms of hiring a diverse workforce or interviewing a diverse workforce or promoting people without having to check the box to say like, yes, we have X number of women, X number of people of different races or like whatever, like, why isn't that part of the system already? Yeah, I think, um, like, number one, I, I never really like to think of capitalism as having, like, a conscience or anything. So, like, you know, when companies put out these statements, I think the intentions are probably good. It's a little bit performative because, like you said, there's, like, concrete things that these companies could have been doing for a long time that would have, you know, slowly fixed these issues or helped fix these issues. I think especially with workplaces, like Asians occupy this like weird ter territory because we like to think of the professional setting as this like meritocracy. And if, if you're an Asian who like works hard and goes to a good school and gets good grades and like interviews well, you can you can get into these places and quote unquote, like fit in and thrive. So our representation and maybe sometimes our over-representation in these types of institutions makes them think that they've already done all that they needed to do. And they're already like, they've done us our favor by letting us in. So there's nothing else they could possibly, you know, show us they care about, um, which obviously isn't true. So, yeah, I think there's like a lot of that attitude and, and you know, I used to work at like pretty big companies and I, I won't share names, but like, obviously you could just LinkedIn me, but like, you know, they would like have these reports about saying like, oh, well, our, our workforce is, you know, 20% um, Asian or whatever. And that's like, you know, better than the national average, which just goes to show like our diversity hire is working but they wouldn't take into account the fact that like that was almost entirely made up of the junior staff. And by the time you get to like middle level managers or executives, there would be no, really no Asians left. Like that, those kind of things aren't necessarily coincidences. Like it's just kind of points to like the systemic attitude that like, you know, Asians are good for following orders and, and, and doing grunt work. Um, but the political, machinations that it takes to like rise up in any setting like those things are not as available to us so you work in finance in new york new york is pretty diverse if we look at the city as a whole and i think you kind of touched on this already uh in terms of the the work job descriptions because like in the world of finance i'm gonna just throw a stereotype out there it's pretty like much an old boys network, right? Like, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I would say that's very fair. 
do you feel like you have to change yourself to fit into this old boys network type environment or do you think that it's progressed enough where you and all your forms can thrive or like is this like an environment that you see like do you see yourself as like a person breaking down barriers for like the next generation of like Asian men coming in or do you think this is a place that you are at a disadvantage because you are Asian um well you know I think like to your point about it being sort of an old boys environment like that's definitely true it's not it's not really as overt as you would think though I I guess like these days especially all these banks being part of like larger international conglomerates there is an awareness of like the tenets of like diversity and inclusion and things like that I think um, the barriers are a little bit more subtle now like for instance I think like one one year we had like a a holiday type party and and the the head of the group wanted to host it at his like club or whatever um but that club itself was like male males only um so like the one woman in the group and the like one muslim guy in the group who didn't drink alcohol were like just not not included in the invite which i thought was like super super odd and it's just awkward i mean everyone's working in the same physical area so we're gonna know that people were excluded and i think it wouldn't it wouldn't have been that hard for them to find like a more egalitarian place for this function to be held at but like it's kind of just this insistence of like doing things the way they were done when when these like you know senior guys were coming up and they just want to preserve that tradition and in their minds they think maybe they're doing something to like uphold a certain legacy but like in reality it is it is turning people away this is more of my personal interest in the work realm are you involved at all in esg like environmental social governance assessment of companies I am in a very topical way. So like I I used to cover like power utilities and infrastructure. So obviously like, you know, renewable energy, like solar or wind would be part of that umbrella. So like we look at it from like, not so much from like a truly caring about sustainability or these type of things, but like ESG investments are just generally more attractive to investors right now. So like they're a little bit more valuable in that way. So, um, when we kind of focus on these companies or entities that do that kind of work, and when we're assessing them, it's, it's from a lens of value as opposed to truly caring about climate change or whatnot. So did it increase in interest because of Larry Fink's letter to the BlackRock investors? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think it's just kind of a broader phenomenon, like, you know. Because a lot of the stuff I hear, it's like, oh, well, companies with women are going to perform better or like they're like different studies that show this right but I'm curious if like investors actually agree or if that's just kind of window dressing yeah no I'm, I mean like I'm a cynic so I, I I would like to think that they agree I think it's like 50 50 they want to agree and they also want to look good and be like you know guilt free in their investments so it's just like if the ends justify the means like I guess we don't need to like delve into the souls of these investors to like <laughs> see if they really believe the things that they're thinking. But 
I all, all I can say is like from from what I've seen, like these investments are getting more and more popular, and people really want to like invest guilt free, which I think is a positive change. Like any way you you look at it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the same thing goes with diversity, right? Like diversity on a board in however, whatever type of metrics that they want to use to account for that. Right, but it was it was such an interesting phenomenon because like you know. When we were like advising boards on on improving ESG, especially around diversity, it was such a funny paradox because we would just be presenting to these boards about how they should have fifty percent female representation on their boards. Meanwhile, the team that we brought, our advisory team, would be like hundred percent men. So it's like we like we knew what should be done, but we weren't even like really doing it to ourselves. So a lot of the companies I've worked at are more engineering tech types. And so sometimes the conversations will be, oh, well, we don't have a strong pipeline for women, which I don't fully agree with Mm -hmm. in engineering or sciences or whatever. Is it necessarily 50-50? But there are still places you can, you just got to like look harder to recruit them in. So like get them, like start at the funnel or like increase the funnel of who's coming in and so then I guess like the same argument at the board level it's like oh we don't have like quote qualified women or qualified candidates that we would be able to recruit I don't know this is just like I guess if we're going to have two cynics talking to each other this is kind of the conversation we're having (laughs) no exactly I feel like you know they visualize like a cold faucet and a hot faucet side and you you know just like okay we're gonna we're gonna start hiring women so we just like expect to turn the faucet and then like equal flow from both sides it's like these things take time to nurture and build like if you have never hired women for certain positions um people aren't gonna necessarily you know go to school for those things or prepare themselves for that role so it's not gonna happen over like one recruiting cycle or two like you're really gonna have to like work at it consistently to build up your pipeline um and i think that's the company's responsibility too yeah absolutely Sorry, totally like went off a rant um, because I was like, oh, we can talk about ESG um, (laughs) with somebody actually who knows about the finance side. So going back to your story, I guess like in trying to reconcile all this, did you ever go through a phase where you like rejected your Asian-ness and then re-embraced it later down the road? Um, For me, I always felt like it was a delicate balance and but I, I had this like awareness like we wear our Asianness externally like there's no escaping it so I always knew like even if you want to reject it like people are gonna assign it to you regardless and that's just gonna be like the snap judgment that everyone makes so I did for a while I feel like you know have this sort of bitterness towards it and that it was like holding me back from potentially like the things that I feel like I could have achieved if I didn't have this burden. Um, But I think as you age and you think back on your life's experiences and and like, obviously hindsight is 2020, but like even the struggles you had, like it adds color to your life. It creates this like sort of more interesting narrative that you can really look back on and think like, okay, well, these are the adversities that I, encountered and they didn't necessarily stop me so it 
in, in ways makes your achievements a little bit more valuable. And I, I think like that's something that people of color in this country can really like be proud of. You're so eloquent. I love that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my Are you comfortable jumping over to like dating? Oh yeah. My favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like don't even know where to begin. I think it's like such a delicate dance dating while Asian in America. And I think straight women and straight men have very different experiences. And then gay men have very different experiences, gay women also. So it's just, um, it's very precarious who you run into and sort of like what you discover. I think these days everyone does like a fair bit of like social media stalking before you actually go out on a date with a person. And um, like, you know, even even in those situations, like you can unearth certain like red flags that I like make my friends joke about, but like mean like you should stay away. Like if this Wait, like person what? like they're white, but they have like an Asian translation of their name as like their Instagram handle or whatever, and like they've studied abroad in Vietnam for two years, or they have a picture of them standing in a field with like a rice hat. Like these are like symbols of fetishization of the culture and sometimes it's like perfectly innocent like these people are just like you're allowed to go to Vietnam if you want to like that's totally fine but like you know if it's a case where they are obsessed with some concept and they want you to be like the embodiment of that culture or concept um that's weird I think that's weird <laughs> I mean from my personal experience like if they're with you because they are obsessed with your Asian-ness or love your Asian-ness, they will move on to somebody else that's Asian like very quickly. It's like, that's a very interchangeable quality. If they've taken no time to like understand you on a deeper, more personal level, like you are pretty commoditized to them because there's just like so many Asians out there. And that's another thing that I feel like you can see through social media. Like if you're a good Instagram stalker like I am, like you can see like all of their exes. And if every single ex is, Asian and like the tempo with which they replace Asians is like very very fast you sort of understand like this is kind of a strange pattern I don't know this is like probably a decade ago or so where like the term yellow fever was floated around a lot. I don't know if it's still used now oh yeah I, I think it's still widely used or like white on rice or like I don't know there's a lot of these things that I think even in high school it was a little bit of like a joke because I don't think we thought about it as like an insensitive thing I guess it's like through a different lens than we have are able to see now. So that's one. So this like fetish is I can't say the word. <laughs> I like struggled too when I was like. <laughs> so the Asian fetish. So at the date, that's like at the dating level. What about at family interactions? Because I've definitely dated people where there was inherent racism at their parents or like family level that was not obvious to me at the time. I mean, in some ways it was, but in thinking back, there are like so many, I guess, like red flags that were much more obvious as I've collected life experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's like, it's such a thin line because like I've been with like significant others' parents who have been less exposed. So like they're naturally curious and they ask me like these awkward questions, but in those settings, I'm like happy to sort of 
be a sounding board or teach them in that way. Um, I've been lucky in that, like, I've never, I never encountered a parent that has had like a negative attitude. But I think a lot of that is like um, being gay. I think if the parents are cool with that, they're generally cooler like to everyone. Um, that's like one one gift for the LGBT community. But yeah, I think that's super hard. And I think it's also hard because you wonder like what parts of that racism like percolated into the person you're dating. If that's like the kind of people they are and the environment he grew up in, does he share those views? And it also kind of makes me wonder like if he blindly or like thoughtlessly put me in this situation with his like literally racist parents like was he not thinking enough about this situation right yeah I feel like I was oftentimes the first Asian girlfriend another thing that I think is interesting to bring up from my perspective at least is that like there's a dynamic that exists in like the gay Asian world that I don't think as much exists in the the female fetishes there there was that word again fetish fetishization <laughs> there's like kind of this like resounding feeling of rejection in the gay asian community because i feel like um you know there are those people that like really go after asians and they have their like small corner of the community but the vast majority like really don't want to date people of color and, and i feel like i experienced that a lot when i was first coming out and meeting and meeting people in, in the community and dating the the cliche is like the profiles would say no rice no chocolate <laughs> which is like when I take it at face value it's like funny I guess um and that was their way of kind of softening the message but they didn't want to date Asian people they didn't want to date black people so you know that was like more around the time that I was like coming out of undergrad and that was about 10 years ago and what was okay to say then is different from what was okay to say now. So like, I don't really see those phrases anymore, but I think the sentiment is still the same. And I also think like, you know, dating is the last like bastion of acceptable racism because people will always say like, well, you know, the heart wants what it wants. It's like a preference. So they kind of write it off as just like, it's emotional. Um, so I can't help being compelled to like see color and reject certain types of people but yeah I don't I don't necessarily buy that I just feel like if you were truly like loving of all people and really saw everyone in the same light you would be able to like open your heart to them completely and the fact that like you find yourself like completely unwilling to even consider certain types of people I think that's a pretty good indication of this like feeling of racism what do you do yeah I mean like I don't have a good answer for that because I haven't really figured it out myself. I, you know, still single. <laughs> I, I think like I sort of retreated into myself and in the beginning, I was all about messaging people first and trying to start up conversations and, you know, seeing everyone as a possible or a potential date or candidate. And pretty quickly I learned that was like definitely not the case what I started to do was just never messaging people first. And I feel like on like any app since like 2012, I've never <laughs> messaged somebody first. And like a numbers person will tell me that like, 
you know, you're only hurting yourself. It's limiting, limiting your net or, or whatever that you're casting. But I think there's like an emotional toll of like really putting yourself out there and like constantly being rejected. So I think the first barrier a lot of us put up is like, let, let them come to me first. And that way, at least I'll know that they're like partway interested, but that's like, you know, definitely limited sort of the interactions I've had and the community that I've been able to build because it's just diminished the possibilities. Yeah. And then I guess from there, you have to sort through, like look for the red flags of people who are only, yeah. So there's like so many barriers, like by the time you get to like the end of all, all these, I don't want to say tests, but like these hurdles, like there's nobody left. (laughs) There's like so much I want to say, but then like, I'm also like getting caught up choking on my mind and my mouth catching up with each other. (laughs) I guess we'll, well, let's wrap it up. First of all, I want to thank you for being vulnerable and sharing and having this conversation and just being open. Do you have any closing words that you want to say to folks of like the Taiwanese, Taiwanese American type community, anything related to identity work or LGBTQ? Yeah. I think this is like weird for us, like for better or for worse, like Asian Americans aren't used to being the center of like national conversations. So if you're anything like me, like you have, you had no idea how you should feel really and and what you could do to be useful. So like, yeah, I mean, I don't consider myself an activist in any way. And I don't think the only option here to be useful is to be going to protests or donating money to people or doing these like big things, even though they are important work. I think like you can also just like be a voice in conversations. And if you don't, necessarily have something to say like you can amplify other voices that you find to be to ring true in your mind and your heart and I think that's like perfectly suitable way of sort of elevating the conversation and keeping it going and like another thing I think is like we sort of now know how we want to be reached out to you know what I mean like I was talking to a friend and she was kind of talking about how she was a little bit upset that like a lot of her closest white friends like didn't really message her or anything during this entire debacle and and like but they were like active on Instagram showing pictures of like brunch or whatever which is fine I think like that's something to maybe keep in mind but like now you know how you want to be reached out to when things like this happen so like when things happen again inevitably they will to like you know our black allies or Latinx allies or LGBTQ community I think we should like remember what we wanted done for us like we should do that for them because you know I think in the past in the summer for the BLM movement I I didn't really know how to be useful and I didn't know like if it would be awkward or seem disingenuous if I reached out to like certain black friends out of the blue to like offer my support but like now that I know what this feels like I think any showing of appreciation and love is like definitely seen as a positive and taken as a positive so, so we should do that going forward yeah do you write? I feel like you should write, be like a writer. As you know, my Asian parents did not encourage writing or, you know, the humanities. Actually, like among my family, my sister, Joanne, is the writer, you know, but my parents were always like, oh, no, you should pursue like hard sciences or something like that. So like, it's kind of like the side hobby. For me, like it takes the place of being able to talk and emote in person and verbally, because I, I find that to be a little bit harder this is writing is kind of my outlet yeah 
I can't wait to read more of what you write. It's something that I've been trying to do more of re- recently as well, because same thing, I did hard sciences. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it's almost like therapy for me because there's so many thoughts like swimming around in your head. And by writing, I feel like you give it some structure and just put it together. So even just like going back and rereading helps you think about how you really feel and sort of calm yourself. So it's a peaceful, it's a peaceful activity in these yeah. crazy times. What's your process? Like, how do you find time to, do you set aside time or do you like write on your phone, write in a journal? Like what's your process for writing? My process is, it's kind of frantic. I know like, you know, when you're in school, they tell you to like map out like your thesis and when you're like three, like supporting points in your conclusion. I feel like for me, like if I don't feel something strongly, like I won't, really be able to produce anything it just like nothing comes out just sounds dumb but like you know the blurb I wrote in particular I just like I think I I started by like thinking remembering this one anecdote about my dad and the cheesecake factory even though it was like so ridiculous but like I thought of that and then the rest just kind of like came out of me in like 45 minutes I think all the thoughts are there but like once you get that one lightning bolt of feeling like it just all comes out so it's not really a process it's more like this like frantic (laughs) That's awesome. I mean, it's like something that people say to do, right? Like if you go to therapy, they're like, you should journal. If you're trying to work on a business plan, they're like, you should write all your ideas down. Because I verbalize a lot of my thoughts. It's taken a lot of practice to try to write them down. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'll actually wrap it up this time. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. If people want to contact you, what's the best way they can get in touch? Yeah, um, if you want to contact me, the best place is probably on Instagram. My handle is fat rice noodle, like the food. So F-A-T-R-I-C-E-N-O-O-D-L-E. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. This has been great. And that's it for today. Please send me a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at T-W-D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A or shoot me an email. It's hello at TaiwaneseDiaspora.com. And if you or other people you know have stories that they'd like to share on this podcast, please send them my way as well. Some of you have asked about how to support the show. So if you are inclined, go to coffee, ko-fi.com slash T-W-D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A to donate. And if you like to read, check out my book recommendations at bookshop.org slash shop slash T-W-D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A. And 10% of the proceeds will come back to support the show. All right. See you next time.